Hello world, this is John Howe with Dat Post Mill. This is the first of a few mini-casts. Uh, just stay tuned because in February we have big things planned. Uh, we do want to go ahead and join the podcast circuit. And we're really looking forward to, to, to just sharing with you all and, and really answering a lot of questions. Um, but yeah, that post mill is going to start off with the most important thing to us, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is everything that we do. It's the foundation that we stand on. It is the framework through which we explain reality. It is the spectacles by which our eyes see uh, the world and see one another and definitely uh, see our glorious King. So what is the gospel? I want to start off with a story. When I first got into college, many, many moons, I don't know how many moons are in 15 years, but it, anyway, a long time ago, I started college and got involved in campus ministry. And I got involved with Campus Crusade, among others. And Campus Crusade had a lot of good things about it. I really enjoyed my experience. My, I have relationships there that I still have to this day. But one thing also I learned from Campus Crusade is that the gospel is watered down. Now, stay with me. I'm not, I don't want to rustle too many, too many jimmies. But what I, what I mean by that is that the gospel program they had for evangelism was called the Four Spiritual Laws. And the four spiritual laws were four propositions that were basically focused on the person's need for Jesus. This, they were a sinner. They, uh, Jesus died. They needed to accept him as Lord. And therefore, once they did that, they would no longer go to hell, but they would be forgiven and by God's grace, spend eternity in heaven with him. This, is, uh, this was the gospel to Campus Crusade. This was uh, what, it, what it meant when God's good news was talked about, was they could just pull out a little pamphlet. This is not the gospel. And many of you are listening, probably saying, oh yeah, I know that. But a lot of us also, like myself, were raised in the church, where in the past few generations, the gospel from the pulpit has become these propositions. Now, they might not be the four spiritual laws, but maybe they're the five points of Calvinism. Maybe we see the, the, this, 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 this chain of Calvinism, this tulip, as if that is the gospel. Now, again, just like with the four spiritual laws, I'm not disagreeing with the propositions. I myself am a Calvinist. All of us here at that post mill are Calvinists. Matter of fact, our understanding of theology, Calvinism, is a huge, huge part, even a staple uh, of, our, of our theological framework. So we agree with Calvinism. We agree with those things, but again, we are here today to answer the question, what is the gospel? You see, the gospel must be about more than you and me. It must be bigger than where I'm going to spend afterlife. It must be bigger than just my personal justification by faith alone, though that is a glorious, glorious part of the gospel. I want to challenge us today in these brief minutes. <laughs> it's kind of ironic, this huge, huge gospel in a few minutes. But I want to challenge us to think and understand about the gospel as being the whole counsel of God. See, if the gospel was just four spiritual laws or just five points of, soteri of soteriology, 
then we would not need 66 ancient texts as an anthology transmitted and translated and preserved for us through history to give us the story of redemption. The Bible is big because the gospel is big. Now, I want to just point out a few things. If you have a Bible, I hope you do, whether it's on a phone, tablet, or if you have the good old, like me, the leather and paper. But if you could turn to Romans chapter 1, because that's where we're going to spend the rest of our few minutes. But I do want to make a reference to Hebrews 4, because something very interesting is said by the author of Hebrews there. In Hebrews 4, 2, he says that the gospel was preached to Israel. And what does he mean by that? Well, then he gets into Deuteronomy. He takes us to Deuteronomy to show us where one of many places in the Old Testament where Israel had the gospel preached to them. It's also astounding to me that the gospel preached in Deuteronomy, according to Hebrew, the author of Hebrews, has to do with their dominion, with their covenant faithfulness, with their, uh, with, with, with their law-keeping, This is what the gospel in Deuteronomy is according to the author of Hebrews. I wish we had more time to get into that, but that just says a few things. But one is that the gospel cannot be only about our personal salvation and an afterlife. Afterlife isn't even talked about in Deuteronomy. You rarely see it talked about at all in the Old Testament. And it's really not as big a theme as uh, the American church has made it to be in the New Testament either. Not saying that there's not to be present, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Amen. There is a king who sits enthroned in heaven. That is, I, uh, amen. But the gospel has way more going for it than you going to heaven. So let's look at Romans chapter one. We see that it's, Paul wastes no time in his letter to the Romans. He wants them to know the gospel. And indeed, everything he's going to say from this first portion here on to the rest of his letter, this glorious, huge letter. So much, so rich, so deep in theology and and in truth and our Christian identity and the call of Christian. And he wants us to understand all these things from the understanding of the gospel. So right out the gate in Romans chapter one, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel of God, not the gospel of you or the gospel of me, not the gospel of heaven or the gospel of whatever we want to make it to be. It's important that if it's the gospel of God, then we need to be quiet. We need to read the scriptures and really ask and God, God, okay, if it's your gospel, what is it? I'm ready to be quiet and learn from you now. That's what I had to do. I still, I have to do it every day. I'll, I'll do it after I get off here. That's for sure. So we see that Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, he's called as an apostle. He's set apart for the gospel of God. And this gospel of God has been promised. God promised it beforehand through his prophets in the scriptures. And so we have this other, Paul references the prophets. We see that the author of Hebrews brings, shows us that the gospel has been preached uh, in the Pentateuch. <laughs> and we, now we see that Paul says, well, also the gospel has been preached through the prophets. And if we're familiar at all with the prophets, we can definitely see this. Isaiah is very big on the good news, the coming age of God's salvation. Indeed, in Isaiah, we see that the term Jerusalem no longer 
is just for that one physical city that David made the capital of Israel. But Jerusalem becomes this cosmic place, this huge uh, city that where all the nations are inhabited within it. It has no more need in Isaiah 60 of, of sun or moon or light because God himself, his glory, is their light. Also in that same text, we see that Jerusalem the gates are called praise. <laughs> this is not a normal city. This is talking about the coming day of God's salvation, a new Jerusalem, a new heavens, a new earth, which we also see uh, in Isaiah as well. But moving on, we, we know that the prophets, just like, uh, just like the book of the law, uh, speaks of the gospel. And this gospel, verse 3, is concerning his son. God's son. It's concerning Jesus the Christ. This is what the gospel is all about. Again, it's not a gospel of God concerning you and concerning me. It's not a gospel of God concerning our salvation. It is the gospel of God concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. This is all about Jesus being king. See, the gospel concerning his son is an announcement that Jesus is king. He was born of a king. He has the right to be king. He's a descendant of David. He has the right to be the Messiah. But according to scripture, according to the prophets, the Messiah, to be the Messiah, the anointed chosen king of Israel, meant that you were also the king of the nations, the Lord of all the earth. They go together. You cannot have a Messiah and not have a Lord over all the nations, which is one reason why Herod wanted to see the baby dead, which is um, so many threats and so many things going on um, in that time. To say that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's born of David, um, is, is a huge, huge threat to the powers and authorities that be. But we see that Jesus, who's born of David, he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. Two things here. Son of God, we see that definitely, we see that in, in, in the scriptures. We see that in the Psalms. We see that all throughout. Son of God was, was to be, David himself was called the Son of God as well. That means you're chosen of God. You're chosen for this purpose to be the Messiah, to be a ruler in his stead, to bring his justice and uh, to bring God's kingdom. But we also see something else Paul's doing here. Not only is he using it in that sense, but he is also directly challenging the empire. You see, because Paul knows that he could reach into his pocket and pull out a coin, and on that coin we have the inscription, Caesar, the son of God. The emperor over Rome had this divine claim, a claim of a divine right to rule based on this, that they were the true son of God. This starts because the first, the first Caesar, uh, the first Caesar is dead. Uh, his son, um, we see that Marcus Aurelius takes over, and he doesn't want to dare call himself a god, so he calls himself the son of God because he is the adopted son of Caesar. And we see that all the other Caesars followed suit with that, calling themselves the son of God. You see, Paul says that Jesus, not Caesar, is the son of God. That Jesus. Not Caesar has the authority and the right to rule. 
To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Caesar is not. This is the gospel. Concerning the Son of God, God's unique Son, who's been, who was resurrected from the dead. Now, this has to do with his victory. See, this king who has a right to rule, he has a right to rule because he has defeated his enemies. And this was a messianic um, quality that needed to be fulfilled. If you're going to be the Messiah, one thing you had to do was defeat God's enemies. Jesus, not only does he defeat God's enemies, he starts with the biggest, worst enemy there is, death. Paul later on says in, in, uh, Rome, in the same letter of Romans, talks about in Romans 6, that there's this kingdom of sin in Romans 5, this kingdom of sin that is reigned over by death. So we see that death is a huge enemy that has been defeated by the resurrection of the Son of God. See, the resurrection of the Son of God is not just a great miracle, though it is. The resurrection of Jesus is not just a really unusual thing, though we might think it is. According to Scripture, covenantally, the resurrection of Jesus is the justice of God returning to the world. You see, there's no greater injustice, no greater insult to God than death itself. God's law in Genesis, we see that his first law, do not eat of this tree, was given for what? So that you, they will, you will not surely die. It was a law that would preserve life for God's image bearers were never to die. Death is a great injustice. The Son of God came to defeat that injustice. Death itself has been defeated. Now, this sheds light on the rest of this passage here. Because of death itself, the worst enemy, the greatest terror to humanity, the greatest insult to God has been defeated by the resurrection of Jesus. What does that mean about the other enemies who are not nearly as strong and powerful and scary and terrifying as death? This is why Paul can say to the Corinthians, oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? He says this to a church that is being crushed by the Roman Empire. And he wants to assure them that if death itself is no longer stinging, if it's no longer victorious, if it has no power, then the Roman Empire does not either. The Son of God has been declared to be such with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, look at verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. You see, if resurrection defeats death itself, if because of this victory, Jesus has been declared to be the Messiah, to be the King, to be the Lord, the, the, the Son of God, then surely the nations will be conquered as well. And this is the gospel. You see, the gospel is huge. It's cosmic. It's massive. The gospel penetrates deep into the deepest, darkest recesses of our heart, ripping out our idolatry and our addiction and our wickedness, our rebellion, our desires for autonomy. Yes, 
but it also reaches out into the farthest reaches of the world. The, the, the strongest tyrannies and greatest oppressions, poverties and sicknesses, all these two are being defeated by the Son of God who was declared to be such by his victory over death itself. This is the gospel. The obedience for all the Gentiles, I believe the NIV says for the obedience of the nations, either way, we see here that the Apostle Paul takes the great commission of Jesus seriously. Jesus says to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them everything that I have taught, everything that I've done. We are to make disciples of the nations. According to Paul, this great commission will not be just a so-so commission. Oh, I'm going to go in the world and I'll, I'll maybe, I may, may be able to plant a church here and there. According to Paul, it's the, for the obedience of the nations. Because resurrection has defeated death itself. Jesus is king. Surely he has the means and the power, as he has promised that he does, to disciple to redeem, to restore, to liberate the nations. Are you in bondage today? Maybe you're in bondage to something that no one knows about. Maybe there's a sin that you are struggling with. Maybe there's something, some demon of your past, some lie that you're holding on to, some insecurity. Maybe your identity is being found in your status or in your money or in your race or in your nation citizenship. Maybe, maybe you're dealing with all these things. The gospel of God concerning the Son of God who is declared such by his victory over death can liberate you from it all. Maybe you're in a prison cell right now. Maybe you're being held by an oppressive dictator or government. Maybe somehow some Christian somewhere is hearing my words and they're locked up for the gospel. I want you to know and remember that the gospel of God concerning his son who is declared to be king by his victory over death sees you and is with you and will liberate you from that cell. You see, there is nothing that our God cannot do. There is nowhere where he cannot penetrate and conquer. The gospel of God is bigger than you. It's bigger than me. And what a glorious, liberating freedom we have. What a joy it is to be a part of this glorious gospel. I want to close with Matthew chapter 4. Because if I don't close, this will become... A mega cast instead of a mini. But notice that after, in Matthew 3, Jesus is baptized by John. And then he, is, he goes off into the wilderness. And this parallels Israel. He, he goes in the wilderness for 40 days, whereas Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. He experiences the same temptations as Israel. But the difference is he, is, uh, he defeats the, the enemy. He does not give in to the temptation. It's interesting how he quotes Deuteronomy again every time. Beloved, please read Deuteronomy. <laughs> Jesus treasured it. The author of Hebrews treasures it. Paul goes there. It's very important to understand uh, the gospel. But we see that after he leaves, after his temptation in the wilderness, he begins his public ministry. Notice in verse 17, 
What is the first thing publicly that Matthew records Jesus saying in his public ministry? From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or repent or follow me. The kingdom of heaven is here. This is the gospel, the good news announcement from God himself that his kingdom has come into the world through his son, his unique son, who has been declared the son of God by his defeat over death, but not just death, but by over, he has defeated every authority and power, both earthly and spiritual, and now commands all authorities and powers to pay him fealty, to give him absolute obedience This is discipleship. This is dominion. This is the gospel. Again, this is John with That Post Mill. Stay tuned as Colin will be sharing next week, answering a really important question. What does it mean that Jesus is king today? How how can I know that in America? Very, very important for That Post Mill. Very important for the gospel. It's been a delight being with you all. Stay tuned for February is a big month. But also stay tuned to that post mill. Look at the Facebook page. Uh, on, on, just look us up on Facebook, that post mill. It's uh, grace and peace to you.